You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. There's a, a pastor I know who tells a story uh, about when he was a child and he was cast in a Christmas pageant at his church. And he was super excited as a kid. He couldn't wait to put on a show. And then he got a, the script for the pageant. He was cast as Joseph. And Joseph has exactly zero lines in the, in the Christmas pageant. There's nothing for him to do or say. It's the most boring part in the show. And he was really disappointed by this, so he said, you know what, I need to kind of spruce this thing up a little bit. So he didn't say any words, but every time he reacted to something, his face got huge, right? His eyes bulged out of his head. And then every time he moved around the stage, he would jump his way across the stage. He wanted to make sure that everyone knew that Joseph was here. And after the first rehearsal, the director naturally noticed this. And so he brought him aside and he said, hey, I love your passion. I love your energy. This is great. But that's not what the part is. That's not Joseph. And so he walked away, quite saddened by this. And the next day, he intentionally didn't say anything. He was silent. He was stoic. He was just standing on stage and the whole thing. And the director commended him that day. He said, yes, that, that is Joseph. And what's fascinating about this story is that when we look at the birth narratives of Jesus in the scriptures, we find out that the director is right. Joseph says nothing in any of these stories. One of the central characters, the husband of Mary, is, well, just stand in there in the whole thing. In fact, Joseph never says anything in any gospel. He never speaks in any of the gospel narratives. And Tom mentioned this last week as well. Something similar happens in uh, the book of Luke when we hear about Zechariah going mute. It's as if the gospel writers want to kind of keep the men silent so that we can elevate the voices and the experiences of the women in the stories. It's a really remarkable thing they seem to be doing, particularly in a pretty patriarchal culture and in a couple texts written by men. It's a really fascinating thing. But I think it's important to remember that just because Joseph is silent doesn't mean he can't speak to us. As many of us know who have followed God for a long time, sometimes God speaks most clearly to us in the silence, in the quiet. Sometimes that's when we hear God best. And so, as we continue to reflect on the arrival of Jesus together in our lives in this season of Advent, today we're going to explore the story of Silent Joseph, one of the central characters of Christmas. And as it turns out, just because he's silent doesn't mean he's not speaking to us. He's shouting loudly to us what it means that God comes to us what it means for our lives today and how that news transforms the world. So friends, uh, if you have a Bible, open it with me to the Gospel of Matthew. This is your first book in your New Testament. If you're flipping there, uh, look for the big number one. We're going to be in Matthew chapter one, starting in verse 18. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, by the way, that's okay. Uh, First, there's Bibles on the table. Grab one on your way out. That's our gift to you. Uh, But we also have the words behind me on the screen. You can follow along with me there. Matthew one, starting in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had born a son, and he named him Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of the biggest challenges that we face when we open up these birth narratives of Jesus in our Bibles is their familiarity to us. We know these stories really, really well. Even if we haven't been raised in the church or even if we've kind of been Christian adjacent, our culture has just adopted these stories. Everyone kind of knows them in some way or another. The artifacts stick out to us, right? We know the Magi and the Manger and the Star and all those different things. And actually, in our culture, we've managed to consumerize them as well. We've plastered them into our yards and our homes and this story has been connected just kind of to our American flow of things. And because of that, it actually sometimes removes the radical power of this story for us. It just becomes the thing that we say and do every year. It just becomes this routine for us. And it shrinks our imaginations down. It doles us to its power. And if you want an example of this, just look at the nativity scenes that we make. I discovered a recent nativity scene. Uh, you guys may have seen this. This is a millennial nativity. So Mary is right here in the barn. She's got a latte, getting a selfie with baby Jesus, as one does. You can see as well that they're very energy conscious. There's a, a solar panel on the top of the barn as well. You've got the shepherd over here on the left. He's plugged into his iPad, and he's got his sheep, who has a festive sweater on, as one does. And in case you were concerned, the cow, it's eating gluten-free feed. That's what it says on the feed, and it's 100% organic. So if that was on your mind, you know that that's true. And then the, the magi here on the right, they've all got... Amazon packages, rolling in on Segways. They've got all of their hipster outfits. <laughs> Familiarity sometimes shrinks our imaginations. And we turn this thing into a cutesy little story or a nice little fairy tale or a joke sometimes. But friends, this text isn't designed to just give us nice, warm, fuzzy feelings as we sip our cocoa. This text is meant to strike us to wake us up, to shake us awake to what God is doing in our world because we so easily forget it. It's supposed to make us ponder and meditate over and over. What does this mean for me? How does this actually change my life? That's actually what the whole of the Bible is doing. The Bible is putting in front of us what God is up to in the world, what God's going to do in the world, and how that changes our lives. And we want to remember that in the middle of the season when we hear these familiar stories. And that's precisely why Matthew starts the story not with some nice fairy tale, but with a scandal. This is a scandalous story. When we look into the details, we realize this is a taboo situation in the ancient world. He introduces us to Joseph and Mary, this couple who's engaged. And we know that they're from the town of Nazareth. Nazareth was a little podunk, kind of wrong side of the tracks town in the ancient world. And there were only, most archaeologists estimate at this time, only about 500 people that lived in Nazareth. So really just like a bunch of big families. That's kind of who lived here. And nobody really liked being from Nazareth. Nobody really liked uh, the people of Nazareth. It was kind of all well, those people over there. And they're engaged to be married, but traditional engagement back in the day didn't look like it does for us today. For us, it's often driven by the couple, right? The couple goes on a couple dates, and they fall in love. They get a, a proposal under a picturesque sunset. A friend is hiding in the bushes, taking pictures. We all know how this goes, right? But traditional engagement, back in the day, it was actually driven more by the parents than it was by the couple. Families would get together over years, and they'd get to know each other, and eventually, they'd matchmake their kids together. 
And then once those kids reached mid to late teens, which sounds young, but remember people lived shorter lengths of time back in the day. When they get to their mid to late teens, uh, the parents get together and they draw up a contract to get these two married. And that contract has witnesses. People from the community come and see and sign off on this contract. It's actually a really communal and familial affair. And then after this contract is signed, there's a, a year-long period of betrothal. The husband would go and prepare a home for his bride to move into with him, which is really fun and exciting, but that year-long period was also intentional because they wanted to make sure no funny business was going on. They wanted to make sure that neither of them was sleeping around. They wanted to make sure that there was no baby on the way. That year-long period ensured that things well, were up to snuff in the relationship. And so when we arrive to this story in Matthew, we're in this kind of last period where all of this work, all of this effort has been put into their engagement in their marriage. Joseph is preparing a place for Mary, and then we learn she's pregnant. Oops. Right? And how's that news going to go over for Joseph? Place yourself in Joseph's shoes in this story. You've known Mary for years. You've been working tirelessly to prepare a place for your married life together, and then you get a text from her that says, hey, we need to talk. Which is always the worst text in a relationship, right? Hey, we need to talk. You never want to hear those words. Those are always negative words. And so he prepares for the worst. But even then, he couldn't anticipate this. She looks him right in the eyes and says, I'm pregnant. Think about the wheels that are spinning in Joseph's mind. He could probably be spitting out some questions here, right? Like, okay, well, when, when did this happen? And who did it happen with? And why did it happen? Why did you do this? And Mary says, no, 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 don't worry. It's not with another man. The Holy Spirit conceived the child in me. What is Joseph thinking at that point? This woman's lost her mind. She's crazy. Who does she think is going to believe that message? Who's going to buy that lie? And does Joseph buy it right away in the story? No. He doesn't believe her because he knows where babies come from, as we all do. That's a really important detail here, you guys. When we read our Bibles, we often think, well, these ancient people, right? They believed in these miraculous stories and bought in to these crazy things, but we're very scientific and enlightened people. We would never do the same sort of thing. Joseph doesn't buy into it here because he knows that when a man loves a woman, they do a thing and a baby is born. That's what happens. It's been happening for thousands of years. It's going to keep happening. And so he believes that Mary has cheated on him because that's how babies work. And now it leaves Joseph with a really difficult choice. He's really got two options, and neither of them are very good. Option one is that he could choose to stay with Mary if he wants to, but if he does that, it's going to result in heaps and heaps of shame on both of them because soon she's going to start to show. And that means that people are going to start gossiping about how that baby came around because other people know where babies come from. And they're either going to see that these two were getting it on before they were married, which is a taboo in that culture, or they're going to start to speculate about where this baby really did come from. Maybe Mary was sleeping around. Either way, continuing in the relationship at this point will result in them becoming a taboo, being ostracized and shamed in their culture. It's scandalous in the ancient world. So he could continue that way if he wants to, but that's going to be a really, really hard road. It will ruin, in many ways, both of their lives. And... Remember, from his perspective, he would be getting in a relationship with someone he already loses trust in from the get-go because he thinks that she cheated on him. So that's option A for him at this point when he learns this news. But option B, it's not much better. See, he could, if he wanted to, divorce Mary, which was the common practice here when adultery had happened. But divorce in this sort of situation is brutal for the adulteress in this case, in Mary's case. It would ruin her life. She would be put on public trial 
Everyone in the community would know about it. Her name would be dragged through the mud. Her family's reputation would be ruined. And she could never get married again. It would ruin Mary's life. So what does he do? Does he heap shame onto both of them? Does he uh, enemize Mary, this woman that he was committed to? He's stuck between a rock and a hard place. And we learn here that he considers this choice really deeply. He wrestles with it. He reckons with it. And then it says since he's a kind man or a righteous man, he decides to divorce her, dismiss her quietly. Which is kind of a middle way here. He says, okay, I know you cheated on me. And this is all a really messed up situation. But I don't want to keep hurting you. You've hurt me in a really brutal way, but I don't want to continue that pattern because I know that shaming you won't heal my stuff. I know that running you through the ringer won't actually heal this in my end. It's not going to fix things. So I'm going to divorce you. It's going to be a bummer, but I don't want to see you continue to get hurt, and I don't want to see your life ruined. And so he resolves to divorce her quietly in his mind. He hasn't done it yet, but he's resolved to do it. And at this point, the story's kind of going how we would expect, right? It's very much like a soap opera uh, thing that you'd watch on TV. But then things get really wild, really, really wild, because, well, a vision comes to Joseph, a vision that causes him to change his mind, to say, I'm not going to divorce you, and I'm actually going to continue forth with the marriage. Now, remember, by marrying her, he is going to accept the shame of an unmarried pregnancy in his culture. He'll be ostracized, he'll be gossiped about, his reputation will be ruined because of this situation. But he still chooses to do it. Why? That's an insane decision. He is saying, I will ruin my life for the sake of this person who, at least on the surface, seemed like she cheated on me. So what sort of news could he have gotten in this vision that would make him make this radical decision to change his life forever? What sort of powerful proclamation did he receive that would say, this is worth ruining my life over, potentially? What is the news that's changed his heart? We learn two things in this vision that Joseph learns. He learns who this child is and what this child does. Who this child is and what this child does. And those are the things that cause him to potentially ruin his life for this child and this mother. In Joseph's vision, the angel tells him that the child will be named Jesus, for he will save the people from their sins. Now, in the language of his people, Jesus' name actually wasn't Jesus as we say it. Jesus is kind of the Englishified version of that name. We've actually brought it forward into our language. But at his, in his day, he would have been called Yeshua. Yeah, we've got a breakdown here for you. So Jesus is kind of this modern English version of his name. He would have been referred to as Yeshua, uh, it was a condensed version of an older Hebrew name, which was Yehoshua. Yehoshua is where we get Joshua in our day. And Yehoshua is actually a mashed together sentence. It's conveying something about the person and what God is doing in the world. That was common in the ancient world. They'd kind of mash a sentence together. And so Yeho, the first part, it's short for uh, the Bible's name for Yahweh, or, or for the Lord, Yahweh. And then Shua literally means saves. So Yehoshua, Jesus' name, or, or Yeshua, where his name derives from, literally means the Lord saves. That's what we learn in this text. And so Matthew's sentence is a really interesting one. He's doing this intentionally. He phrases this sentence really awkwardly. He says, you will give him the name the Lord saves, for he will save. The Lord saves, for he will save. That's a confusing sentence, right? Because the uh, name of the pronoun there, the person that the pronoun is referring to, is not clear. Who's the he? Who's doing the saving? Is it the Lord? 
Or is it the Lord saves? Is it Jesus or is it God? Who's doing the saving? Well, that's the point. Matthew says the answer is yes. It is both of them. You see what he's doing here? He's making a radical theological claim about who this child is. He's saying that this child is the Lord who's come to save us. That this child is God with skin on. And that is the central message of Christmas. That is the first thing that convinces Joseph, this is bigger than me. And this is bigger than my shame. This is bigger than all the pain that I have to endure. There's something way bigger happening here. The notion, the creator of all things, the king of the universe has become a human being. It's shaking us awake to that reality here. And from the moment we are introduced to the person of Jesus in the Bible, we are told over and over, we're hammered over the head with indications that this is God in the flesh, that this is God incarnate. That's why Matthew continues to quote the passage from Isaiah later on in this little chunk that we read together. He says that this child will be called Emmanuel. It means God is with us. The whole message of Christianity hinges on that point. And that's important for us to remember because we live in a time and in a culture that wants to kind of uh, have some revisionist history when it comes to the person of Jesus. We love to talk about the person of Jesus as somebody who gives us some great moral teachings. Oh yeah, I'm a fan of Jesus. I like Jesus. He's got some good things to say. But the Bible won't let us come to just that conclusion. He certainly had some good things to say, but the Bible doesn't say it's just that. The Bible makes clear from the get-go who this Jesus is is. And it's not just in this narrative that we see it. John chapter 1, many of you uh, who have been raised in the church might be familiar with this passage. It says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word is referring uh, to Jesus in that passage. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. John wants us to know that there's no splitting these two up. Jesus is God. And then, if we keep reading through the gospel biographies, we hear that Jesus makes a radical claim about forgiving sins which at first sounds really nice. It's like, oh, Jesus, really forgiving guy, right? But think about how weird that situation actually is. He comes into a situation and forgives other people for the things that they did to someone else. So imagine, for instance, with me, that Stephen Lufkin uh, today was really frustrated with how sound went at church. And he goes straight to Jordan Hoyt in the back. And he says, Jordan, this was unacceptable. And he punches him in the face. The reason that's funny is because Stephen would never do this. But imagine with me that that happened. And imagine I saw it happen outside church, and I went up and said, Stephen, I forgive you. That's weird. I don't have the right to forgive in that situation. I would encourage Stephen to seek forgiveness. I would encourage Jordan to forgive, but I don't have the right to forgive anything. Jordan is the one who's been harmed. Only he has the right to forgive. And yet Jesus walks around the ancient world seeing all these things that people are doing to one another, and he says, I forgive you for what you did to them because he assumes that he is the one that is being principally harmed. And the reason he assumes that is because the Jewish assumption at that time was that every person is made in the image of God. And when we harm one another, we're harming in some way the image of God. We're harming God. Jesus is saying, when you harm one another, you harm God. And that means you also harm me, because I'm God. Jesus' forgiveness of sins is a radical claim in first century Judaism. It is to say that I am God incarnate. I'm the one who's come. So Jesus claims this about himself, but keep going. If you keep reading about Jesus, look at how people respond to Jesus. No one who interacts with Jesus leaves the interaction saying, oh, that was a nice little teaching, and just keeps moving on. It never happens in the gospel narrative. No one just comes to the conclusion like, meh, he's a cool guy. 
every person in this narrative does something radical in their response to Jesus. A, a theologian named John Stott brings this up in his book, Basic Christianity. He says, they either hated him and wanted to kill him, they were afraid of him and wanted to run away, or they were absolutely smitten with him. They worshiped him. They gave their whole lives to him. Those are the only responses we see to the person of Jesus. And the reality is, friends, no one runs away from someone who's just a good guy. No one wants to murder the nice guy. It doesn't work that way. The responses that everyone had to Jesus reveal to us that we can never come to the conclusion, well, he's just a good moral teacher. We can never come to that conclusion. And remember, too, that all the people who were closest to him said the same thing. They actually went to their graves committed to the statement that Jesus is God. And think about how crazy that is. The people who walked with him, who slept near him, who ate with him, who shared every moment with him said he's God. Guys, if you want to convince somebody you're God, the worst way to do it is to have people live with you. It's the worst way to do it, right? If I claim to be God, which I'm never going to do, but if I claim to be God and got some followers from that, how long do you think it would take for them to realize, oh, that's not real? Like maybe half a day. My wife would say like 15 minutes, and they would find out very quickly that I am not God. The worst way to convince people you're God is to get them to live with you, and yet every person who was closest to Jesus, every person who lived with him said, the only logical conclusion is that he is God in the flesh, and that's not a very logical conclusion. That's a radical, radical conclusion, and yet everyone who was close to him said it. It's wild, wild, the responses that people had to Jesus. So whatever we have to say about this person, we certainly can't just say that he's a good moral teacher, at least not that alone. He gives us some good moral teachings, certainly, but we can't just say he's only that because he hasn't left that option open for us. That's the reality that Joseph is being forced to reckon with in this story and what we are being forced to reckon with when we hear this story in our own time. But it's not just that this child is God. That is an important thing that causes Joseph to change his mind, but it's also what this child is going to do that convinces Joseph to marry Mary. Notice, he says, uh, the angel says that Jesus will save his people from their sins. And that word sin, I know it's one that I think we have a lot of weird definitions of or uh, sometimes have had exaggerated to us or heaped on us unfairly. And that's true across religious history. And it's a bummer that this word has been used in that way. We often associate it with outdated religious laws. Or we have this picture of God who's very much like Santa Claus, right? Who's just kind of tracking our naughty and nice lists. And we fit Jesus into that framework oftentimes, either intentionally or accidentally. We think that, well, Jesus gave us some teachings so that our nice list can be longer than our naughty list. And then God will reward us at the end. There's just one thing wrong with that picture. It's actually the Bible. The Bible doesn't say that about sin. The Bible doesn't say that about who Jesus is or who God is. The Bible says something radically different, and I think far more robust and far more indicative of our human condition. It's not just about naughty and nice lists. It's not just about moral do-goodery. In fact, one of the most basic meanings of sin that's given to us in the Bible isn't inherently religious. The word actually expands beyond just religious usage in the Bible. The word literally just means to fail or to miss the goal. That's how it's used most predominantly throughout the scriptures. For instance, there's a passage in the Old Testament where uh, in the book of Judges, the author is saying that there are warriors that are so talented with their aim that they can't miss a hair on someone's head. And the word for miss there is the same word that we translate over when we talk about religious sin. It's to miss the goal. That's the idea here. It has in mind with it a purpose that we have failed in some way or another. And so when the Bible describes human sin, it implies to us, well, what's the purpose then, right? 
if sin is the failure to accomplish the purpose, what's the purpose that we're made for? Because then we can understand what sin really looks like. And the Bible gives us that purpose. Right at the start, right at the opening pages of the Bible, we learn a little story about the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve. Many of us, again, have heard the story, whether we've been raised in the church or not. And that story has much less to do, we often think this in our culture, has much less to do with like magical trees or topping serpents. It has much more to do with God's purpose for the world, God's intent in creation. We learn here that God's intent uh, can be captured in a phrase. It's a phrase that's used uh, often throughout the scriptures called shalom. We translate it peace or harmony oftentimes. It's this holistic state of abundant love where all things mutually flourish together. And then humans are made in God's image, which gives them the ability to, to live out the goal of that partnership with God. They're called to steward and cultivate shalom in the world. Called to steward and cultivate holistic peace and flourishing. Which means the Bible's picture of life is so much bigger than behavior modification. It's so much bigger than naughty nice lists. Our purpose as humanity is to treat all things and all people and all creation with love and honor and respect because God does, because God made such things. It's telling us that every single one of us is artfully crafted by God for full and free partnership with him in peace and flourishing. That's the purpose. That's the goal. That's way bigger than a nice list that I check off. And that's why, friends, we often feel this inherent deep longing for those sorts of things, for honor, for respect, for dignity, for peace, for love. We feel those things because we're made to. It's our design. But the story doesn't stay there, unfortunately. We know that the story continues on. At the end of that initial story, how do humans do with accomplishing their purpose? Do they pass or do they fail? They pass or they fail? They fail. fail. Yes, you guys know the story of the Garden of Eden. I'm glad. glad. They fail. They fail to accomplish their goal because they deceive themselves into believing that their purpose and goal isn't the mutual giving and flourishing of shalom, but that it's instead about taking and grasping things for their own benefit at the expense of others. That's, uh, in many ways, what the taking of the fruit in the garden gets to signify to us. It's exposing this innate habit that we have to redefine good as chasing our own desires or acting for our own benefits at the expense of others. So sin is this propensity to prevent shalom, to destroy shalom, to break up shalom. That's how the Bible understands sin. And the rest of the scriptures go on to show us that God is constantly inviting people back Even after they failed, he says, come back. You can partner with me again in Shalom. I welcome you back. I forgive you. Just come back and partner with me again. And humans keep saying, nah, we're good. Over and over and over again. The nation of Israel is very much a stand-in for what so many of us experience. That we can know the right thing to do. That God can give us the right thing to do. Give us the right picture. And we can still say, but I don't want to. That there's this gap between who I know I ought to be and what I know the world ought to be and what I actually am and what I see around me in the world. This massive gap that we all experience. That's what the Bible is telling us. And this idea of sin, missing the goal left and right, it's found in what we do to ourselves. It's found in what we do to others. It's found in what others do to us. It's found in structures and systems that inflict harm upon other people. And I know that for many of us in this room, as modern Western people, this notion uh, of sin as the fractured world that has uh, resulted from the breaking of Shalom, it's easy for us to think about it out there beyond us. 
I don't have to do a lot of explaining to you. I don't have to do a lot of convincing of you to say that the world is broken, right? Most of us acknowledge that. We experience it on a regular basis. But what's really fascinating is it starts to change when it gets more personal. You ever notice that? It's easy to condemn the sin out there, but then when it gets here, you're like, whoa, I mean, I'm a, I'm a pretty decent person. I do well, right? I mess up every once in a while, but I'm a, I'm a good person. That's our habit, right? You ever notice how easy it is to draw the line between good and evil with other people, but then how blurry that line gets when you look at yourself? Isn't that convenient? Isn't that really, really convenient? Because it allows us to point at the world out there and say, all those people have to get their act together without taking responsibility for me, without taking responsibility for the same corruptions that run straight through my heart. Most of you in this room know my wife, Emily. You know that she's loving and caring and kind and amazing woman. If you know her at all, you feel loved by her because she loves you really well. But guys, if Emily's ever provoked, she can be downright cruel. Let me tell you. And I'm just a good man. I just, I, I always want people to get along. I'm nice and kind. I never want anybody to be harmed, right? But Emily sometimes can be mean. Obviously, I'm being sarcastic, right? The reality is that we can both be cruel to one another because the same thing that we see in one another, the same brokenness that we see in one another is right here. It runs straight through both of us. And as soon as we get to the notion of saying, that person over there, we've missed it. We've missed the picture of human brokenness that the Bible gives us. The same dynamics that cause us to harm one another and break shalom out there can be traced right back here which means civil wars don't start out there between two political parties. They start here in our souls. It means oppression isn't just the work of an empire. It starts in our corrupted hearts. We all have a terminal illness, a sickness unto death. As Lady Macbeth put it, that damn black spot that she can't wipe off. And what Matthew wants us to see and what he wants Joseph to see in this passage is that the arrival of Jesus is the solution to that sickness. It is the solution to the condition that all of us experience all the time. The solution is beyond ourselves. And that central fact that God has come into the world to save us in the midst of our inability to save ourselves, that's what makes Christianity so radically different from anything else in the world. See, in every other religion, a teacher shows up and says, look, the world's broken, and if you just do these religious things or you just behave in this way, you can fix it. You can solve it based on your own willpower or based on your own religious activity. Every other faith gives us that template. How's that worked out for us so far? Thousands of years of religion after religion after religion. Great moral teacher after great moral teacher after great moral teacher. How's it worked for us? Not so great. The world's just as broken out there right now as it always has been. Because knowing the right thing to do doesn't suddenly give us the capacity to do it. That's the condition. And that's why this arrival is so radical. Jesus doesn't just come to give us a moral example. His purpose in the world is to save people from the condition that they can't cure themselves. What powerful good news that is. That the God of the universe has not remained distant in the tragedy of human history, but that he's stepped in, that he's bound himself to our broken condition, and that he's committed to bringing us straight through it towards life and shalom on the other side. That he took the form of a helpless child, the most vulnerable and intimate of human relationships so that we might know his tender love and mercy and care. You guys, the good news of Christmas in our lives is this, that our lives and our world, they aren't hopeless. 
there is profound, tremendous hope, not because of anything we've done, but because of what God has done, because of God's commitment by his restorative hands to bring life to all things. That's the message that Joseph hears in this vision. That's the message that causes him to change his life. He returns to Mary, Mary. Remember how costly this decision would have been for him. From the rest of his culture, from the rest of his world, he would have been ostracized. He would have been pushed away. They would have shamed him and gossiped him. He ends up taking on way bigger burdens because of this choice. Soon after this, he and his wife are forced to flee the country as refugees to save their lives. You gotta be thinking at that point, if you're Joseph, what did I do? What did I get myself into? This is so challenging. And yet he knows that this message is the thing that's worth giving up everything else for. It's the thing that's worth uh, ruining the rest of my life from a worldly perspective because the thing that I get on the other side is so much better. It's redemption, it's restoration. So Matthew is putting Joseph's choice in front of all of us right now to show us that we also have a choice. And there's two central questions that we can ask ourselves following this story of Joseph. The first question is, how will we respond to the revelation that Jesus has got and that he's come to save us from our sins? How will we respond to that message? Will we ignore it? Will we sentimentalize it? Will we discredit it? Will we put it off? Or will we actively, every day, remember that we are in need? We are needy people in need of a savior and that Jesus has come for that purpose. I know there's so many of us in this room who are exploring, who are learning, who are testing this faith, and we're grateful you're here. We're so, so grateful you're here. And we want to be a church where you can do that. We want to be a place that reminds you that we don't have all the answers, that we're all growing together. But we can never just greet Jesus' arrival with a lukewarm, meh. We can never hear, oh, that's a sweet story, and just move on with the rest of our lives. Jesus hasn't left that option open to us. So how will we respond? That's question number one. And question number two, what will committing to Jesus cost us? Joseph had to give up his reputation, his social respect. He had to be willing to endure shame and mockery for much of his life. Friends, the reality is that choosing to follow Jesus will cost us something. It always will. It's going to be different for each of us, but it will always cost us something. So what's it going to cost you? What will it cost us? Is it money? Is it a relationship? Is it a habit? The comfort of home or control? Maybe it's time for you. Maybe it's just an hour a day or a day a week where you serve your neighbors and participate in community. Maybe it's an addiction. I don't know what it is for you, but whatever it is, friends, I can promise you that it is small pittance in comparison to participation in shalom with the God of the universe. It is worth giving up for that. And you should also know that Jesus will never call you to give something up unless he has something much better for you on the other side. That is always, always true. So what will it cost you? You guys, Christmas isn't just sentimental. It's paradigm shifting. It's groundbreaking. It forces us to ask the deep and meaningful questions in our lives, the ones that really change us. And so let's not be people who just put... Uh, some nice nativity scenes on our mantelpieces so they can collect December dust. Let's be people who really examine this story, who let it come to life again and again in us. And let's ask ourselves the same sorts of questions that Joseph had to ask. How will we respond to this news? And what is it going to cost us? Friends, let's pray.